Welcome to Byline. I'm Rick Hallett. Well, for some, quite some time now, it's been reported that the Kentucky Retirement System, the pension plan for state, city, and county workers, does not have the money to pay its obligations. We followed the public debate about the state's inability to solve the problem. But in the meantime, Jim McNair of the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting has been looking at another side of the issue. He reports that it's impossible for pension holders to know where much of their money is being invested. He spoke with WFPL's Gabe Bullard about his latest story. Your story is about how Kentucky Retirement Systems, KRS, is putting a higher percentage of workers and retirees' money in not only controversial investments, but secret investments. That's right, Gabe. KRS invests $15 billion on behalf of Kentucky retirees. These are state and city and county employees and retirees. And for the most part, they've invested that money over the years in traditional investments like stocks and bonds. But more recently, the state has been a leader in moving toward what's called alternative investments, and that includes things like private equity funds and hedge funds. And uh, what uh, the problem with that is that the pension uh, holders in the state have no idea what that money is being invested in. Right. You can't tell where it goes once it goes into these hedge funds. No, I've made requests for that information from KRS and and uh, been told that uh, the money is invested in things like the Daniel Boone Fund or the Henry Clay Fund. Well, what are those? So I ask, I get copies of the annual reports, and when I get to the page that shows the list of the holdings of those funds, they're completely whited out. So KRS knows what's in this, but pensioners can't now. That's exactly right. Uh, unlike... Uh, any other investors who have uh, internet access to exactly what is in their uh, mutual funds or in their uh, retirement portfolios online, uh, they cannot find out what a good portion of their money uh, in their pension fund is being invested in. So how do pension holders feel about this? They're mostly concerned with the funding levels of the pension funds to be concerned with how their money is being invested. but. There are some retirees who are concerned about where their money's in being invested, and one of those is Jim Carroll, who's a retired parks and recreation employee. He wants more transparency. From the perspective of a stakeholder, uh, we really would like to see KRS examine its communications policy as it relates to investments. Uh, and there's a general feeling among retirees that there's a lack of communication about those policies and decisions. And, the nature of alternative investments is there's some secrecy involved, and that's not consonant with a defined benefit plan. What could happen as a result of these being secret? Well, uh, anything could happen, actually. And, and we're, we're finding out in dribs and drabs that some of the investments that KRS has put some of this money into uh, have gone bad. Uh, one was uh, a debacle called Camelot Group. The the, uh, that's a, a New York City private equity fund, and the owner of that fund is under indictment right now, and uh, the uh, director of KRS concedes that there's a good possibility that, that KRS might not get its money back. And if pensioners want to change where this money is invested, they can't. It's not their call. That's, that's the strange thing about all of this is that KRS, this isn't KRS's money. This is the pensioner's money, and yet they have no say in how their money is being invested. They are not uh, consulted by KRS to uh, approve these investments or to sign off on these investments in any way. Is anyone trying to change this? 
There have been efforts. There was a bill introduced in the legislature uh, late this session by Jim Wayne of Louisville, uh, but it was introduced too late and it met opposition, met with opposition from KRS. There's also a lawsuit that was filed by the city of Fort Wright that would uh, seek to prevent KRS from investing in uh, hedge funds and private equity funds uh, for cities and counties. All right, and we'll keep track to see if any of these efforts start moving forward. Jim, thanks for being here. Thank you, Gabe. That's Jim McNair with the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting talking about his latest report on the Kentucky retirement system. He spoke with WFPL's Gabe Bullard. This is Byline on WFPL. U.S. Senator Rand Paul has been courting African-American voters as he continues to mull a run for the White House in 2016. The first-term Republican from Kentucky has been meeting regularly with constituents in West Louisville and with African-American groups in other parts of the country. Today he's addressing the National Urban League Convention in Cincinnati. The senator's efforts to reach out to minorities has been praised by some local leaders and criticized by others. WFPL political editor Philip M. Bailey spoke to the senator this week about his record on civil rights and other issues. You know, we've been working very hard on a lot of criminal justice issues, educational reform issues, and also economic uh, opportunity issues. And uh, I think all of these have relevance uh, to uh, really the agenda of the Urban League and the things that the Urban League would like to pass. Quite a few of the things we're doing to try to restore voting rights, to try to uh, make uh, the war on drugs less uh, disproportionate and less of a burden on, you know, one community, I think are all things that uh, people in the Urban League support. But we've had a good last month or two working both with Cory Booker and Harry Reid on restoration of voting rights, uh, also with Senator Ben Cardin on this. So really this is a bipartisan movement to try to make our system better. The Urban League's history is a bit different than other civil rights organizations in that its focus has primarily been about an economic agenda for minorities, uh, home ownership, entrepreneurship. Do you think that 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 organization's model and history and agenda currently uh, overlaps with your own? Well, you know, the interesting thing about whether or not some of the reforms in criminal justice have anything to do with economic opportunity, they kind of do because, you know, five million people not only are prevented from voting, when they go to apply for a job, these five million people also are being forced to put on their application uh, that they've been convicted of a felony. And so that really, I think, impedes economic opportunity for a lot of people. But broader than criminal justice, the other issue we've been looking at is how do we revive cities like Detroit, 20% unemployment, you know, a uh, really a city in disarray. And we, we think we've come up with a plan, and this uh, is based on some of the ideas of Jack Kemp. But this is a plan for uh, resurrecting these cities by having dramatic changes in policy, basically lowering taxes to leave more money in Detroit and also lessening regulation to uh, allow businesses to start up easier. I recall when you were in Louisville, uh, West Louisville, at Bill Stone's shop, you made the, the point that uh, economic freedom zones could inject about $650 million in stimulus over 10 years. Uh, when I talked to urban studies experts here, they said that they were very encouraged by your plan and were eager to see it. Uh, what's the math behind that, and how do you get to that $650 million figure? The math is done the same way for Detroit, West Louisville, or Appalachia. What we do is we calculate you know, the income for the area, and we calculate the taxes that are currently being paid by businesses in the area, and we calculate them under a new rate. So under our bill, we would lower the corporate income tax from 35% to 5%. 
We think that would be a great incentive for businesses to move into West Louisville. We also lower the personal income tax to 5%. We lower the capital gains tax, or the tax that they tax investments to zero. We lessen some of the regulations to get businesses started. And we also lower the payroll tax. A lot of uh, poor people don't pay income tax. So we uh, lower their payroll tax for both the employee and the employer. So if you're getting your first job and it's going to be at a Pizza Hut or a Burger King, uh, you're now 2% cheaper for the Burger King to hire. Actually, really 4%. And uh, you get to save 2% and the employer saves 2% to hire you. And we think these are great incentives to try to get uh, people back to work. I know critics have said that there's some unproven math on this and that you have responded by saying, well, critics come up with your own plan. Uh, do you think, do you <laughs> yeah, think that's kind of true? But uh, the interesting thing is the math's not unproven. Math is math. I mean, we have all the tax rates, and you multiply them out based on what currently is happening, and that tells you what what how much taxes or how much money would be left in the West End or in Detroit or Appalachia simply by doing the math. So the math's not unproven. The only thing that's unproven is whether or not uh, people are willing to try something different when maybe some of the old policies just haven't worked. Let me shift gears here and ask you about your overall attempts, both here in Louisville and nationally, to court black voters and to broaden the GOP's base. It seems, and correct me if you think my assessment is wrong, but you get ridiculed by national Democrats on this, and you don't seem to be getting a whole lot of kudos or credit from Republicans. How would you assess thus far your interactions with African-American voters across the country and their feedback? You know, I, I've got nothing but positive feedback. Even when I go into an area and people say, hey, I'm a Democrat, always have been a Democrat, and will continue, some of them will still look at me and say, you know what, But the Democrats have taken us for granted, and I'm, I'm willing to uh, put myself out there and say, you know what, Democrats have to come and compete for my vote. You know, here's the question to Democrat politicians. When's the last time they were in West Louisville? I'm there with a, a mobile office every month. I'm there in person probably every month or two. I've met with African-American leaders in every major city in the country. So the question is, is are people monolithic and not willing to have their vote competed for, or is there an openness? I think there is a, a crack in the door, but it's going to take work because Republicans, frankly, just haven't been there and haven't worked hard enough to try to get African-American vote. But, you know, I, I have read the history of Louisville, and I, I look back to a time when once upon a time, 1930, 99% of the African-American vote was Republican. And going to that is probably, you know, not going to happen immediately. What, cha what change I, do you think in your mind to go from 99% to what it is now in, in your yeah, the, biggest, the, the, the biggest change, and a lot of people still want to dispute history, but the biggest change was 1932. The vote in 1928 was two-thirds at least of African Americans voting for Hoover nationwide, and then in 1932, two-thirds of the vote went for FDR, and I think, frankly, it was abject poverty and uh, 20 and 30 percent unemployment and just uh, the devastation of the poorest among us. And at that time, it was definitely African-Americans. So I think economic uh, considerations uh, had people switching parties back in the 30s, and then it never came back. I've run into two groups of people in, on this when it comes to your efforts and you personally. There's the group, and this doesn't matter with age, there's the group of African-Americans who feel like your comments on the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or disqualification, and it's a non-starter, and, and there's sort of almost a, a, a hostile reaction to your presence. 
See there, the second group of people are the folks who say, even with those comments and what I may think about them one way or the other, uh, that was 50 years ago, and I want to work with Rand Paul on the 21st century civil rights agenda, school choice, etc., things of that nature. Uh, do you feel that that's sort of the impasse for folks and that there are those, those two camps or are there maybe more camps of folks who you're running into? I, I think very few people are in the former camp in the sense that uh, very few people are, are running around saying, oh, something about the Civil Rights Act. You know, I'm a proud supporter of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and I'm actually working with Democrats on, you know, trying to restore aspects of the Voting Rights Act that were struck down. So people who want to say that are simply partisans, and they don't care about the truth too much. But uh, I say, frankly, that nobody's trying harder to do legislation for minority rights on the Hill than I am. Most of the legislation I have has been co-sponsored by members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, almost every bill that I've done has, co has bipartisan support from the Democrat Party. So really, uh, people who say that just want to dwell in uh, sort of, I think, empty partisanship. It's what, it's what sort of brings the vitriol and dispute to Washington and the dysfunction and has everybody sitting in their own corners. And... Uh, Frankly, I can work with people from the left and the right and have consistently shown that I am willing to and open to that. So I, I try not to listen too much to the naysayers and just keep going on and trying to make things better. Before I get to what, what Ben Richmond said, though, on the civil rights point, is it a question of uh, exceptions to the rule? I mean, your foreign policy, for example, I think you have taken a position uh, historically where America shouldn't intervene necessarily all the all the time only when it's called to for a national defense where its interests are involved. Uh, your libertarian beliefs are one thing, but wasn't the civil rights movement in, in many people's minds a time uh, for an exception to the, those libertarian ideals where cause the issue about your comments really come down to not your opposition to civil rights or the act, but the issue of private businesses. Yeah, and what I've said repeatedly is that, uh, you know, I would have supported the Civil Rights Act, do support the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, Anybody who wants to dwell in that, I think, is just sort of trying to dredge up partisanship. Uh, ben Richmond of the Louisville Urban League, uh, he's in the National Urban League Conference in Cincinnati, uh, and he'll be there for your speech. He, he told WFPL that he anticipates, or at least he hopes, uh, that people will give you a chance and hear you out. But at the same time, uh, that, that Senator Paul, you need to be pressured on learning and being educated and enlightened about the African-American agenda across the board. Do you think that there will be a point where your votes will begin to reflect? Well, I think what I think what you'd find, I think I think what you'd find is there's no one up here working harder on the Republican side or the Democrat side to uh, know more about the African American agenda from all varieties of groups, not only Urban League but NAACP. I meet with their leaders frequently. I meet with leaders of probably 15 other African American groups. So probably no one is trying harder to uh, advance an agenda that will help people of color as well as people, any people really, who are a minority, whether it's the color of their skin or the shade of their ideology. That's what motivates and drives me. But uh, I appreciate the interview, and thanks for having me on. Thanks, Senator. Hopefully hear from you soon. That's U.S. Senator Rand Paul speaking with WL politi WFPL political editor Philip M. Bailey. And we will be back with more in a moment. This is Byline on WFPL. Welcome back to Byline on WFPL. I'm Rick Howlett. Kentucky's longest-serving prison inmate is Willie Gaines Smith, who's been behind bars for 54 years, much of it at the Kentucky State Reformatory in LaGrange. 
He's serving a life sentence for murder, but some say he should have been paroled decades ago. And now there's a possibility that Smith could gain his freedom another way under a test program approved by the Kentucky General Assembly. WDRB's Jason Riley has been reporting on Smith's case and his incarceration, and I spoke with him earlier today. Well, Jason, what was uh, Willie Gaines Smith's crime that sent him to prison originally? Willie Gaines Smith and another man were charged with murder in uh, 1960. They apparently they shot a, a store clerk, Olin Alexander. They both claimed the other person fired the shot, and it was during a robbery. But they were both convicted in Lexington in circuit court and uh, sentenced to death. Uh, obviously, uh, the execution wasn't carried out uh, because uh, Smith, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, his uh, execution was suspended because of his uh, mental illness. He was declared insane in 1963 and then throughout. And then by 1970, they got rid of the death penalty and his sentence and his uh, co-defendant sentence were uh, commuted to life. Now, his co-defendant was granted parole? His co-defendant got parole in 1981. And in many letters... Uh, Mr. Smith, you know, notes this and says his co-defendant has been released. Why can't I be released? And it seems to be the answer was they had nowhere to put Mr. Smith. His family did not want him. Um, He was mentally ill. And at that point, they couldn't just they didn't parole you to a halfway house or uh, some psychiatric unit. They just wheeled you to the street and let you go. And nobody wanted to do that. So one attorney said he sort of fell through the cracks. There's, There's nowhere to put him. Is he from Lexington? He is from Lexington, and during my interview, that was one of the few things he sort of re- really recalled is he he didn't want to go to a nursing home. He wanted to get out of jail. He wanted to go to his home on Fifth Street in Lexington and start working again. So uh, at the end of August, he will have been in prison for 54 years? 54 years. That's the longest in Kentucky by about a decade and one of the longest in the nation. And now there's the possibility that he could be released uh, under some other circumstances. Correct? He is on a list uh, for a pilot program that just started in Kentucky to release or parole infirmed inmates to nursing homes where Medicaid would then uh, pay for them. The, the problem is uh, finding a nursing home that will ta- be willing to take an inmate. Even even somebody like Willie Gaines Smith, who has not been a problem. Everybody in corrections says they love Willie. He's been no disciplinary problems. He's wheelchair bound and hasn't had any infractions in years. But it's still a, sort of a liability for nursing homes to take these people. But he's on a list that the Department of Corrections commissioner is looking at. And if she provides his list to the parole board, they must release him under this. Then they just have to find a place for him to go. What type of mental illness does he have? Um, he's had several several different things. Um, I believe he's schizophrenic. He's And he's been in and out of sort of mental institutions. Right now he's living in a nursing home. He's not in a psychiatric ward. He's living in a nursing home at the Kentucky State Reformatory where he's been for the last 20 years. But a lot of the papers just say he's insane. Now, you've spent some time with him, and I believe that uh, you, you also have him on uh, camera on uh, on WDRB and on your, your website. Mm-hmm. But what's he like to, to talk to? He um, doesn't say a whole lot, mostly answers yes or no. He very clearly felt he should have been released already, that he'd served his time out um, and wants to get out, but doesn't say a lot, doesn't want to go into a nursing home like this program, wants to go home and get out and, and, and work, believes he's... He wants to get back out into society. I mean, he's got pictures of Marilyn Monroe on his wall, and that was like the last movie star he knew when he was out. So he sort of can talk about her, but he doesn't doesn't know much. He knows who the president is, 
but uh, he can't. He's kind of hard to understand, and uh, you know, seemed nice, nice enough. But but, some, but again, you know, mm-hmm. and one thing the warden said, you have to sort of take into consideration also that this person was convicted of murdering somebody. That person's family was affected. Um, his attorney, who was eighty-one and still alive said, you know, he also, he wasn't executed. He was sentenced to die by execution. He wasn't executed. He is being provided for fairly well in the prison. So there are two sides to it, of course. Has the victim's family spoken up about this possibility? I have not been able to find the victim's family. The victim, Olin Alexander, was 64. I looked for his son and did not have any luck. And being 54 years ago, I've just not been able to. I'd love for them to come forward. I'd love to hear what they have to say. There was no notes in the... They've lost uh, Willie... Uh, Smith's uh, criminal case. Nobody knows where it is, but I looked at his prison file and there's no notes from the family or anything to the parole board that I could find. And you mentioned his family uh, does not want to be involved with him at all. Well, and he is, according to him and prison officials, nobody's visited him in jail. His family hasn't visited him. I couldn't find any of the family. I believe most of them are gone, but at least in 1981, there was, or 1980, there was a mention of paroling him. And they talked to the, his family, and his family didn't want him, and so he stayed in prison. I don't know if this came up in your reporting or not, but is there any concern among officials or, or him that, that releasing him could actually be disruptive? Well, it, that's one thing the warden said where he is. You know, re- releasing him after 54 years, he's in a wheelchair. This is sort of his life now. He knows his life there. He's got a roommate he's had for 20 years. He know he's, he plays bingo. You know, he's got his routine. If you let him out, he doesn't know anything about the outside world. But what you know, what would happen to him then? That's why he'd have to go to a nursing home or something like that if something somebody would take him. And just to put this in perspective, you mentioned the Marilyn Monroe photo in in his room. She was still alive when she was the was top movie star. I was I was going through old newspapers. She was the top movie star when he went to jail. Uh, prison and the um, debate between Kennedy and Nixon, the first televised debate was like a month later. So it was interesting to see all these things in the newspaper going on when he first went to prison. Any indication when a decision might be made about uh, his future? No, the uh, the head of the Department of Corrections is looking at his, his case has been sort of, he qualifies for the program. Now she's looking his his case among others. And if she agrees to it, she'll send it to the parole board. Now the parole board has told him in 2004 it wouldn't hear his case again. They gave him what's called a serve out. So he's stuck there for life. But if the, if the uh, head of the Department of Corrections decides, then they will have to uh, do what do what she says. And if you don't mind me asking you why we have you here on on another topic, you've been covering a, a civil trial this week involving uh, an age discrimination suit, uh, and also involving uh, a former Courier Journal executive. Yes, Mike Hewitt is suing for about a million dollars, saying he was let go in 2011 because of his age. Uh, Gannett claims it was a reorganization and his job was being eliminated. He also made a very high salary, $325,000 Valhalla membership. And circulation at the time was going down, so they were unhappy with his performance. He didn't meet certain goals of raising Sunday circulation. And is this a jury trial or is this a bench trial? This is a jury trial. Uh, They're on break right now, actually, and uh, they're trying to decide whether to allow a list of all the people laid off um, at Courier and Gannett to be shown to jurors and their ages. And I think the judge is not going to allow that. Full disclosure, you're also a former Courier Journal yes, employee. You I, probably knew him. I, I I did not know him. We were on separate. I, uh-huh. But I did work at the Courier for about 13 and a half years from 2000 till 
you know, September. For, I've worked at WDRB for about a year. I did cover the case at the Courier as well. And I think it's an interesting look behind Gannett and the media. And uh, thank you so much for taking time on your lunch break from, from the trial. Uh, any indication as to when this might go to the jury? Uh, I believe they'll have it middle of next week. All right. Jason Riley reports uh, on this uh, trial and many other things and uh, has been uh, reporting on the uh, future of Willie Gaines Smith as uh, Kentucky's longest-serving prison inmate for WDRB and WDRB.com. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you again. This is Byline on WFPL. Years ago, a rumor began circulating that some of Louisville's coffee shops were run by fervent Christians, with some of the businesses doubling as wings of a church and where employees might try to convert customers. WFPL's Gabe Bullard has a story on our website, WFPL.org, that looks into these rumors, and he found that while they're not true, there is a connection between religion and coffee in Louisville, and I spoke with him about the story. Well, Gabe, it would seem like uh, just about any place in Louisville there would be a predominance of uh, Christians working there because there are so many in in the city. Yeah, exactly. I was looking at this survey of religious affiliations among folks in Louisville, and there's over 100,000 Catholics, over 100,000 people identifying as Baptist or Southern Baptist, uh, lots and lots of folks identifying in one of the Christian sects, as well as uh, a lot of other religions as well. It's a pretty spiritual city. You have the seminaries here. You see churches and places of worship on every corner in some areas where you go. And you report that uh, Christians are especially prominent in what's called the third wave of coffee making. What is that? Yeah, so third wave, it's a term that's been around for a while. And if you think about it, in Louisville especially, uh, John Conti was sort of the first wave. You see the John Conti trucks around. Uh, Most offices have John Conti in them. Uh, It's available everywhere. That's sort of the first wave, getting coffee in front of everybody. And a lot of people I talk to really credit John Conti with bringing roasting to Louisville in general. Uh, Heine Brothers, which had about a five-year head start on Starbucks in Louisville, brought this second wave, this focus more on the individual or the quality of the individual drink, bringing uh, terms like latte and cappuccino to the forefront of everything. Uh, Starbucks brought it to most places outside of the West Coast, Louisville, and other cities that had some local roasters like Heine Brothers coming in and doing it. And then uh, the third wave is what you see when you go to a shop like Quills or Sonnergoss, where there's this extra level of attention paid to the individual farm and the roast of the beans and also to the brewing method, whether it's espresso weighed a certain way uh, or this pour over method where they're pouring it over uh, various glass or porcelain devices to make the individual cups of coffee. And why the Christian connection with the third wave? So that's the interesting thing and there's the rumors are always that there's some sort of conspiracy behind it and trying to be extra cool or something like that because third wave I think has some of these uh, cool connotations as they say Uh, but it's really just almost a matter of happenstance here that Sunnergoss and Quills were both formed by strong Christians. They didn't get into it because of their faith, but they just happened to be Christian. They were interested in this next level of coffee. Uh, Matthew Husted, who founded Sunnergoss, said that he was really interested in geeked out roasting. So is there anything to these rumors that uh, they're trying to convert people to Christianity? No, no. Uh, that's uh, I talk to a lot of baristas who uh, say even though they consider themselves evangelicals, they're not going to try to proselytize across a coffee shop counter. They say they've had people come in and ask them specifically about Christianity. They say, you know, oh, you're a member of Sojourn Church, which carries a lot of connotations with it as well. And they say no. Uh, and one gentleman I talked to, Michael Butterworth, who has gone on to National Barista Championships, that sort of thing, he works 
looks at quills, he said, one, that's not a good idea, and two, he's the type of evangelical who doesn't believe that there needs to be a Christian version of everything. A lot of coffee shops here in Louisville, has has this had any effect on, on the industry as a whole? Yeah, one thing about third wave coffee is there's a sort of extra level of attention to how each drink is prepared, and it's not that other shops don't have an attention to quality, it's that there's this different sort of level of it happening in the third wave, and a lot of Christians talk to me about the work ethic that comes from strong Christianity, believing that before the fall, God gave Adam work to do, intending the Garden of Eden and naming the animals, and after the fall, he was told that the thorns and thistles of the earth would prick his arms as he was tending to the garden, and they use that to say that the toil of labor, the toil of work, is something that uh, is a result of, of sin, but actually work is something that must be done, and work is something to be done for the glory of God. And they cite Ecclesiastes saying, whatever you set your hands to, do with all of your might. And they use it as this work ethic that whatever they do, no matter what industry they're in, they're going to do it as as well as they possibly can. And so in the coffee industry, that not only means making the best drink possible, but having the best experience for people when they come visit, which also means not trying to convert them to a new religion, too. Well, you can read Gabe's story on the uh, connection between religion and coffee in Louisville at our website, WFPL.org. Gabe Bullard, thanks for joining us. Sure thing. Now we're going to hear stories from two of our summer interns at WFPL. It's been three years since Kentucky banned texting while driving, and the number of citations issued has gone up every year since. As WFPL's Michael Holman reports, while most drivers are aware of the risks of impaired and drunk driving, they're willing to walk the line when it comes to driving distracted. We all know we shouldn't text and drive, but we still do it. So far this year, the Kentucky State Police have issued 463 citations in Jefferson County for communication violations. That's more than they issued in 2011, 2012, and 2013 combined. And in addition, Louisville police have issued a separate 459 tickets for similar violations. It can be hard to actually spot a driver using a phone while behind the wheel, but Kentucky State Trooper Paul Blanton says the signs are clear. Strangely enough, the indicators for distracted driving are the same indicators for impaired driving. Um, If they're at a stop sign or a stoplight, they may be there longer than they should be for traffic to clear. Uh, or when the light turns green. Current penalties for texting and driving include a $25 fine for first offenders and $50 for subsequent offenses, plus court costs. Drivers also receive a three-point penalty on their license per violation. A bill to double the fines passed through the House but died in the Senate. Despite how dangerous it is, Blanton says it's challenging to pinpoint exactly how many accidents are caused by texting and driving each year. Because people know that it is illegal to text and drive, they will not mention that they were manipulating a cell phone or that they were distracted by a cell phone prior to the crash. Michael Homan, WFPL News. We also gathered some informal opinions on texting and driving and why people take the risk. Everybody texts and drives. Everybody these days. Not everybody. Don't influence people. It ain't everybody. I mean, yes, it is. I don't text and drive, nor does my husband or anybody I know of. Sometimes. I I try not to. Try not to. I see a lot of people doing it. On the road, stop signs every day. I'm on the, I'm on the road every day. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of people doing it. People's... Every single day. I don't like it. I think it's dangerous. Oh, I think it's the stupidest thing that's ever been done. I mean, how can you do two things at one time, it's particularly when you're driving a big missile? I see people running through traffic lights. They're still texting on the phone. I see them running stop signs. 
and maybe doing it. They think they can have good judgment. That's what they think. Mainly the young ones. Oh, even old people, you know. I guess they're just, they don't care. I feel like deep down they know that they shouldn't, but they do it anyways because they think that they're invincible. It's not going to happen to them. Like, oh, I'm not going to get an accident. I could do this. I think because we live in a society where it's immediate response, immediate gratification, and people aren't focused on any one thing anymore. I, I don't know. I guess they don't consider themselves vulnerable. They don't have the opportunity to be uh, comfortable with self. So as long as they're connected to something or somebody, you know, they feel more empowered. And I think in some cases that's okay. But when you drive in an automobile, that's not okay. I just don't want people to think I'm ignoring them. Like, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't know if we're going to get around it unless you, well, with technology, maybe, you know, with the cars now, with the Bluetooth and stuff like that. But people don't want to call anymore. They want to text. So. My phone has a voice to text, and I use that. And I don't have to, I can just talk and pay attention to my driving. I have Bluetooth, wireless. My car can do that, but I haven't figured out how to hook it up yet. They got, uh, I think now, cars that you can actually talk to and text, and I think that's a bad idea. Any diverted attention from operating your vehicle in a safe manner is a bad idea. It was about midnight on a Friday night, and uh, they pulled me over. They thought I was drunk, but I don't drink. Then he asked me if I've been doing drugs, and I said no. And he said, so did you have your phone or something? And I told him I was texting, and yeah, I got a ticket for it. I think it's more prevalent and more accepted by society than drinking and driving, but it's just as dangerous. So we've got to break down the societal acceptance of it. I think it's more dangerous than drunk driving, to be honest with you. Because at least drunk driving, you can see in front of you where you're texting, you're looking down. 45 miles an hour, you look down the text, you've covered the third of the football field. It only takes Second. I'm a retired little firefighter, so I know what it takes to, you know, just in just a second. You can end your life with somebody else's. Some informal opinions on texting and driving around Louisville, and thanks to uh, Michael Holman for his report. Two years ago, Las Vegas real estate investor Jared Weiss purchased the boyhood home of Louisville boxing legend Muhammad Ali for $70,000. Weiss, an avid fan of Ali, bought the home with plans to transform it into a museum. But as WFPL's Gail Faustin reports, little has been done to the Parkland house during the last two years. As the paint continues to chip away and the roof begins to cave in, neighbors are hoping some changes will come soon. Lawrence Montgomery has lived on Grand Avenue for all 79 years of his life. I own the house next door to it. That's where I used to live when Muhammad was living there. He says decades ago it was a lively street with children playing, a peaceful environment where everybody knew everybody including Cassius Clay, the young Ali who grew up next to Montgomery. But that was then. Of course, there's new people on the, on the block now, and uh, I really don't know too much about them, but the street is very quiet. Not many children there that used to be. Although the street is desolate, occasionally a bus full of people will pull up to visit the house. A historical marker stands out in front. Montgomery currently owns a few homes on Grand Avenue and says he's willing to work with the buyer of the home, Jared Weiss, to turn the home into a museum. I had offered to this guy that uh, that house would be for sale if it, he wanted to make a memorial out of it, but uh, I haven't heard a word from him. We haven't heard from Weiss either. He declined to comment for this story, but he spoke with WFPL in 2012, soon after he purchased the home. He said he'd been speaking with Ali's family and was looking forward to restoring the home to its original 1950s state. I found out that it was online, and I saw it for sale, and uh, I'm a big Muhammad Ali fan, and uh, I wanted to purchase the home, make sure that uh, 
the, the preservation of his legacy was intact, and I wanted to make sure that um, this would be put to good use. Dave Lambricks of Keller Williams Realty sold the house to Weiss. He needed quite a bit of renovations to be livable. Uh, the property had been vacant for quite some time. Lembrick says the neighborhood could use some extra attention. I think it would help that whole area right there. That would be a really cool draw. I mean, there's nothing else cool on Grand Avenue. Nothing at all, except Muhammad Ali's childhood home. The mayor's office is staying out of this issue. Many have wondered why the Muhammad Ali Center hasn't taken an interest in purchasing the home to restore it. Spokesperson Jeannie Conkey says the center is a nonprofit that strictly focuses on preserving Ali's legacy in other ways. But, you know, whatever comes to be, we hope that the home is well-maintained, that it'll serve as an accurate and positive extension to Muhammad's legacy, and as an everlasting historical marker for the neighborhood. All that sits now at 3302 Grand Avenue is a crumbling house and a plaque in Ali's honor. Weiss hasn't said whether or not he will even be visiting the home in the near future. Another resident of Grand Avenue, Hannah Holloway, says the only thing she has seen done to the home is the grass being cut. I wish they would do a little more with it. A lot of people come by to look at it, and I think um, the owners could make it a little more presentable and, you know, let the history be known. Gail Faustin, WFPL News. And we'll be back with more in a moment. This is Byline on WFPL. Welcome back to Byline on WFPL. I'm Rick Howlett. It is time for our art segment, and Aaron Keene joins us. Welcome back, Aaron. Hi, Rick. Well, before we uh, speak to your guest, we have a few things uh, going on this weekend that we uh, want to talk about. If you like Shakespeare... Louisville, Kentucky is the place to be, huh? If you like Shakespeare, Kentucky Shakespeare has all of the Shakespeare for you um, <laughs> this weekend. Saturday is the Bardathon. This means they're running all three of their professional productions um, in one day, Rick. And the interesting thing about that is, of course, it's the same cast of actors performing in all three productions. So what you're going to see, um, the food trucks, etc., are opening at 3.30 p.m. in Central Park. At 4.30 p.m., um, Henry V takes the stage. At 7.30, it's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And then at 10.30, for the late night crowd, it's Hamlet. So you really get to see, I think, when you see all three productions back-to-back like this, you're going to see the extreme versatility and skill that this acting company has displayed over the course of the, su- of the summer. Um, all reviews of all the shows are on WFPL.org. If you click on Arts and scroll through, you'll be able to find them all. Has this been done before here? It's um, it has, yeah, back in the um, back in the day. <laughs> so um, maybe like in the late nineties, early aughts, and um, when Becky Jo Schneider actually was artistic director of Kentucky Shakespeare, this was her this was her big baby. She would do mm-hmm. the big marathon days, and so um, they're bringing it back because it was a lot of fun in the olden days, as they say. And um, they're pretty pretty sure that they're going to be able to draw a big crowd. They had like eleven hundred people, I think, last night. So um, they continue to bust their own attendance records. They've brought in bleachers to. Um, augment the benches. Of course, you're welcome to bring in your blankets and your chairs as well. All right. Collected stories uh, this weekend at the Bardstown Theater. Yeah, this show opened last night at the Bardstown. This is um, by Donald Margulies. Um, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Drama in 1997. It's a two-character play about an acclaimed fiction writer and her protege. Um, and the protege ends up writing a novel based on a significant experience in her mentor's life. So it's about the relationship as it grows and changes between these two women over time. And it's also about this idea idea of, um, you know, who does a story belong to, really? And what responsibility do we have mm-hmm. to each other to um, 
to allow one another to tell our own stories, even if we won't. Um, so that's running through August 3rd. There's a review up on WFPL.org as well. All right. And finally, uh, a new art show opening at the uh, Carnegie Center in New Albany. Yeah, that's tonight from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, the Jamie Ebersole Jazz Quartet's going to play. This is a free free show um, opening. The exhibit is called In Between. Um, it's a paintings exhibit by Rebecca Norton and Nicholas Dorsino. Um, the interesting thing about the work that these two artists do in two dimensions is that they really work with the spatial limits of 2D art. Um, so there's a lot of feeling of depth in their compositions, mm-hmm. um, like you could just walk right into their paintings. All right. And we have a guest live in the studio with us today. Yes. My guest today is Kristen Boone. She is the newly minted president and CEO of the Fund for the Arts. Welcome, Kristen, and congratulations. Thanks, Erin. I'm happy to be here. So the fund is where you got your start working in fundraising, right? right. You were the the VP from um, 1997 to 2000, I believe? Yes. I was, was one of my very first jobs was wow. at the Fund for the Arts. I had graduated from the University of Kentucky. I had taken the opportunity to move to Atlanta and work at the 1996 Olympics. So um, a great opportunity. Worked at the High Museum of Art and got a call to come back to Louisville to work at the Fund for the Arts. And I worked for three years and had the opportunity to work on everything from our workplace campaigns to our allocations process to our regional campaigns as well. So it was a great place to start my career and to understand this community. Well, so over the cor- in the time since, you've raised um, nearly $250 million for, um, for arts and civics organization. Um, and big successes include when you um, spearheaded Actors Theater's capital campaign, $13.5 million. And uh, we were just talking in the hallway about this. They had $120 million campaign to fund the parklands of Floyd's Fork for 21st Century Park. That's right. And it was a real privilege to work on all with any of those institutions, Actors Theater, um, really the opportunity to work on one of those cornerstone arts organizations in this community, and then to help build a new institution uh, through 21st Century Parks and create and, and build the Parklands of Floyd's Fork. Well, so um, what's an easier sell, Kristen, parks or arts these days? You know, I I really can't choose between my babies. (laughs) Really, arts and parks, I think, is one of the the really selling points and what makes Louisville so unique. I think it's part of who we are. It's how we define our culture. It's how we share our values. And through those um, complementary and um, diverse facets of our outdoor facilities and our arts and cultural attractions. It's a, it's a real beautiful mix for Louisville and how we tell our story to the world. Well, so you are part of um, what looks to be like a new guard in arts leadership in Louisville. Um, Les Waters has come on in the last few years as artistic director of Actors Theater. We have a new artistic director of the ballet joining us very soon. That's right. Um, we have Guillaume Dumier over at the Speed Art Museum. We have Andrew Kite and Teddy Abrams at the orchestra. Um, and Kim, Kim Baker. Baker. Kim Baker. I'm on it. <laughs> Kim Baker at the Kentucky Center. There's so many to mention. Um, and these are all fairly young, um, dynamic, you know, let me flatter you for a second, um, arts leaders. And so how do you see that? Um, where do you see yourself in that arts landscape? And, and what do you think that this kind of energy means for Louisville's big arts institutions? Yeah, I think it's I think it's super exciting. It's an, it's it feels like there's a moment right now, an opportunity that we have to harness. There's new energy, new ideas, a real sense of innovation and entrepreneurialism in the arts. And 
these new leaders are bringing ideas both from within Louisville, but also from um, other communities. And we are looking at each other and, and asking the questions, what can we do? What does this look like? And so there's a sense of collaboration that uh, we are beginning to fill out. Um, but my, I think my opportunity is to help be a connector mm-hmm. and help to um, kind of convene and encourage those discussions in a way from the Fund for the Arts and, and, and our role in the community. Well, so the fund just closed its most recent campaign. You guys raised more than $8 million, $8 for, the, million. for the third year in a row. Um, and so what are, what is the fund going to look like in the next year going forward? I know you've embarked on a, a bit of a listening tour. So what are you learning? What are you hearing from folks that they need and want? So I knew that stepping into this role, one, the fund has a very strong history, a strong foundation. More than 20,000 donors helped make that $8 million campaign possible. And so I knew that in a role of steward of those gifts, and I feel very strongly that that, that those are gifts and I have a, a responsibility and the fund has responsibility that's entrusted to us to step back and to ask our donors, our community, and all members, you know, members across the community, how can we best serve um, this um, place today? And so that's why I have over 100 interviews in the next several weeks sitting down with people to say, what is the role of the Fund for the Arts? What's the best role? How do we continue to evolve? What do you see are the ways that we can be a better steward of your gifts or better serve this community? And I, the, the themes are just emerging now. I'm, I'm just two and a half weeks in, so I have many weeks to come. But I'm excited because those themes that do emerge will help us shape our path moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you're at this, and, and Louisville itself is at this very interesting point where we have this, um, we have these big cornerstone organizations that have a legacy already and that have, um, you know, very um, established places in our community. But then we also have all of this change, this new leadership, we have this whole entrepreneurial class of artists raising up also. And um, so that seems like there's an interesting tension there. Like, how do you uphold what we already have while also breaking new ground? Right. And Erin, I think that's that's a really great question. And I think the Fund for the Arts needs to continue to ask those questions of of ourselves, have those discussions with our board um, and have those discussions with the, the larger community. And I think you're exactly right. We have some very strong cornerstone organizations that are putting out really high quality work, new leadership, new ideas, and thinking about their role in new and different ways. Um, whether it's what Andrew Kipe and Teddy Abrams are thinking about the orchestra and how do they take the orchestra outside of the theater and into the community. Uh, we were talking this morning about an, a performance later in the year at Airquois Amphitheater. And the opportunity for our of cornerstone institutions to continue to test their boundaries and what what audiences they serve and how they serve this community. I'm excited about that. I come from this. I grew up here in Louisville. Um, I grew up in the South End. And so I always think about what are the barriers for people across the community to have the opportunity to engage in and experience arts and all different arts. And just you mentioned that right now there's a whole nother class of small arts groups that are coming up. And so what's our responsibility is to help nurture a broad and diverse art scene. 
We don't have the answers to that yet, but we certainly have to ask those questions. Well, what are some of those barriers that you see to, like, say, connecting um, communities in the South End with the downtown arts scene? Well, I think there's the opportunity, one, for um, the Fund for the Arts actually uh, represents a a broad swath of our community. With 20,000 donors, we have donors from across the region. And so we actually can be one of those connectors. Uh, For some of those people, we are their introduction to the arts. And so our responsibility is to continue to make sure that we are pushing um, arts educational art experiences for children and arts experiences for adults out into the community. So whether it's it's arts groups going out into the community or actually helping to support the art that is happening in different neighborhoods. I think some of the work that's going on in um, led by different organizations, whether it's the work that Ideas 40203 is doing in Smoketown or what is happening in Portland are these kind of organic um, artist-led initiatives. And so we want to support that, encourage that from all parts of our community. Great. We'll just, um, we'll kind of close kind of looking ahead um, and looking a little bit back. The Fund for the Arts has really stepped up and become a very um, integral part of the community's efforts to bridge school gaps for kids, arts programming during during school breaks, and also um, funding educational opportunities for for arts for the kids in the public schools. Um, Is that going to remain a focus moving forward? Absolutely. I think it's fundamental. I think that we understand in this community, we have identified education as one of the key challenges that we have to figure out the solution to. And in the arts community, we understand that arts can help students achieve and succeed. And so the opportunity for us to continue to have arts as part of what's going on in our school systems um, is integral to our success moving forward. Wonderful. Well, Kristen Boone, newly minted president and CEO of the Fund for the Arts. Welcome back to the Fund for the Arts. And um, thanks for being with us today on Byline. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you much, Erin uh, Keene. And thank you, Kristen. Congratulations. That's all the time we have for today's program. Before we leave you today, though, we have an announcement. Today's Byline program is our last, at least in this form. Now, starting next week, we'll expand the Here and Now program produced with our colleagues at WBUR in Boston to five days. But we will continue to bring you the content that you've been hearing on Byline. Erin Keene's not going anywhere. She'll be back with us. I'm also very excited about a new initiative involving our newscast that I'm going to have the privilege of uh, directing. And again, we'll have more details to come on uh, that and all of our changes in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks to you for listening to Byline and to the WFPL news staff, especially producers Laura Ellis and Brad Yost for putting the show together every week. And I'm Rick Howlett. Have a great weekend.